Isaiah chapter uh, 36. Pastor Brent, last week, um, as we've been going through the, the Old Testament at a, a pretty quick pace to try to get the, the meta-narrative, the large story of Scripture, um, hit a very key passage last week. And um, when he was talking about this passage, he, uh, he mentioned um, something that we had a privilege of, of doing, going to the Shepherds Conference um, about a month ago. And uh, the privilege of sitting under a professor from the Master's College, Abner Chow, who's an amazing one of the, you talk to people from Master's College, it's like everyone's favorite professor. He's a young guy and uh, just really passionate. But he uh, pointed out something about the book of Job that I've never thought about, and, and Pastor Brent mentioned this last week, that the book of Job, most scholars and people think, is the oldest book of, the, of Scripture. Not, not talking about the oldest thing that happened, that's Genesis, talking about the beginning. Um, the book of Job was just, when it was written, was the first book written in Scripture. And most people agree that that's, that's probably the case. And being the oldest book, uh, Abner Chow was saying that, that you can look at it almost as an introduction to God's revelation. Showing us why we need God to reveal truth to us. I mean, think about Job. For, for the most part, most of us in here know the story of Job. But that story of Job lasts two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that's pretty much the whole story of Job. And the book of Job is 42 chapters long. Most of Job, from chapter 3 to at least chapter 31, the majority of that book is man's attempt to explain reality. Reality was Job lost his fortune, lost his family, all his children died at once, was critically ill to the point of not being recognizable. And Job's three friends, one of which, and this is something I learned, is a scientist, one of which was a historian, and one who, of which he was a, a philosopher. The smartest men of their day couldn't explain reality, couldn't explain why this happened. If anyone shouldn't suffer, it shouldn't be a righteous man like Job. And if anyone could handle suffering, it would be a rich man like Job. And they couldn't understand why. Yet the reader gets the privilege of seeing behind the scenes. God reveals truth that there's more to the story than, than meets the eye. The book of Job really shows us two things. One, that God's special revelation, scriptures, his special revelation, shows us truths we would never know without him revealing it to us. And two, without God's revelation, him revealing these truths, we would be completely and utterly lost. Man's best guesses, the smartest men of the, the world, fall short. Again, it's almost like pulling back the curtain, getting behind the scenes look of what's really going on. And when God pulls back the curtain, one thing he shows us is that he is completely sovereign and in control of everything that happens. Job is one great example of this. But there's just passage after passage after passage, like Psalms 139.16. You saw me before I was born. 
Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Proverbs 16.33, the lot was cast into the lap. You think it's by chance. It's the the uh, New Living Translation says, you, you roll dice, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Daniel 4.34-35, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does the all things mean? Well, verse 10 tells us, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All things means Things in heaven and things on earth. All things means all things. And that's what it means to be God. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. Lamentations three thirty-seven through 38 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Matthew 10.29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. And there's not just passages that talk about this. There's stories that, that reveal that God is sovereign. Man thinks one thing's happening, but God reveals that, that God is doing something else. Pastor Brent mentioned last week, Joseph and his brothers thrown into slavery, then, then from there thrown into prison. And at that point, from man's perspective, you're saying, why, God, why? Then he goes to be from prison, the second in command of Egypt, and is able to save his family from famine. And Genesis 50, 20 says, as for you, the brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And probably my favorite story showing God's sovereignty is found in Kings, 1 Kings 22. One of the most evil kings in the, in the scriptures. God says, you're going to die in this next war. It's going to happen. This king, thinking he, he can escape this, this prophecy, escape God's sovereign plan, decides to dress someone else up as king, and, and he wouldn't dress himself up as king. And 1 Kings twenty two thirty three says, And when the, the captains and the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. As soon as they found out that this guy that they were chasing wasn't the true king, they stopped. And you maybe thought, hey, this guy did it. He escaped God's sovereign plan. Well, verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random, shot an arrow straight in the air. And the arrow came down and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. 
From man's perspective, the universe is just random. From man's perspective, God is not in control. At best, if there is a God, he's deistic. Or not engaged in in day-to-day life. Or God purposely limits his sovereignty. But the Bible reveals that God is completely sovereign and completely in control. I love how R.C. Sproul says, There is not a maverick molecule in the universe. Now that causes some problems, some questions, and some comforts. First, comforts. Let's talk about that. Your life is never out of control. It might be out of your control. It might feel out of control. But your life is always in God's hands. You know, Job never got an answer to the, the why question. But he trusted that God, in the end, he trusted that God is sovereign, that God is good, and that God is wise. You know, we actually don't know exactly why God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? But I can tell you this much, the book of Job brought, has brought comfort to those in need for thousands of years. But this presents some problems. God's completely sovereign. What about evil? Is God in control of evil? Let me just be clear. I'm not going to do a sermon on the problem of evil today. But, but the Bible says two things for sure. God does not tempt. And God does not directly cause evil. But he uses evil for good purposes. And theologians like to say he ordains evil. What's ordains means? It's, it's less than causes. It's more than just allows. And a perfect example of this is Job's life. He didn't directly cause the evil that happened, but he was the one that said, have you considered my servant Job? Brent answered this question last week, and and I would suggest you hear his sermon if, if you didn't last week and you have questions about this. He didn't answer it exhaustively either, but he faithfully uh, uh, explained the text last week, and this was part of the text last week. But the ultimate answer is just faith in who God is. We're called to trust that God is sovereign, meaning all-powerful, that God is good and loving, and that God is wise. He knows what's best, and he knows, what's, he knows it better than us. So it causes some problems, but, but it also causes some questions. And these are fair questions. What about evangelism? What about obedience? Do my choices matter? And the answer is yes. You're held responsible for the choices you make. What about prayer? Does prayer matter? If God is sovereignly in control of everything and he plans everything out, do my prayers matter? We'll turn to Isaiah 36. We're going to try to answer this question at least partly through this passage. I'm going to give you some context of what's going on as we, we, we jump into this story that's happening. 
already. Um, first Kings, we see that Israel, this nation, is split into two, two kingdoms because of their sins. The northern uh, nation is, is ten of the twelve tribes of Israel go, go north. And they're called Israel because it's the majority of the, the tribes. And the southern nation um, is one tribe, Judah. And they're called Judah. And Benjamin is kind of split between the two. Last week, we saw that, that God used Assyria to judge the northern nation because of their sins. And Assyria came into the northern kingdom, Israel, and completely wiped them out and, and took most of their people out of the country and away from the promised land. So all that is left is the southern kingdom, Judah, with Assyria, this massive, strong nation, breathing down their neck. So Isaiah 36, verse 1, says this. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lekish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. A couple of things going on here. First, the king of Assyria sent the Rebshekah. Uh, this just means it's a title for royal counselor or of military affairs or chief officer. And I think some of your scriptures, if it's NIV, instead of saying Rebshekah, it just says chief officer. It's a title, not a name. Assyria had this great army, and we learn in, in chapter 37 that, that there's 185,000 troops but there's more than 185,000 troops. The full army was much larger than that. This is a huge army. We also learned that Lachish was uh, south of Jerusalem. So the, the, the leader comes from south of Jerusalem. Nineveh, the capital city of uh, Assyria, is north of Jerusalem. This means Jerusalem at this point with this massive army of way more than 185,000 people is completely surrounding Jerusalem, ready to attack. And on top of that, this was a brutal army. Maybe one of the most brutal armies man has ever seen in the history of man. They would treat their captives like animals, putting hooks in their noses and mouths and, and dragging them along from that torturing them. There's, there's reports of cities that would just commit mass suicide when the army was coming just so they wouldn't have to deal with the Assyrians taking them over. But here's the good news. This passage gets pretty intense as we go through it, but there's good news, and I want us to feel relieved. God is going to save Judah. How do I know this? Well, I've studied the passage and read the ending. But even if I hadn't, Hosea prophesied 20 to 50 years before this event happened, before Hezekiah was even keen, in Hosea 1, 7, it says, I will have no mercy on the northern kingdom. He's, he's, he's going to let Assyria destroy the northern kingdom. They will be destroyed by the Assyrians. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. I will save Judah 
He even says how he's going to save Judah. And will not save them by bow, sword, war, horse, or horse. It's not going to be by a war. It's going to be a miraculous salvation. I will save Judah. So we can breathe a sigh of relief. Skip to verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Again, the Rabshakeh is the military leader, and he's engaging in in psychological warfare. This this army is way bigger than Judah, and they're going to just wipe Judah out. But it's still going to cost resources, time, money, and casualties to attack. It would just be better if Judah surrendered. So he's going to try to talk Judah into surrendering. And he starts by dishonoring King Hezekiah. He doesn't use his kingly title. He just says, say to Hezekiah. In contrast, he calls Sennacherib the great king, the king of Assyria. And he asks this question, on what do you rest this trust of yours? This is the defining question of this entire passage. And honestly, if you read Isaiah, this is one of the defining questions of the book of Isaiah. What do you rest this trust of yours? And I ask you this morning, what do we trust in? What do we trust in? The Rabshakeh's goal in this next portion of scripture right here is going to try to shake the people's trust in King Hezekiah. He's going to try to get them to rebel against King Hezekiah. And he's going to use eight arguments to do it. So let's go through it real quick. The first argument is found in verse 5. Do you think that mere words are strategies and power for war? In whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Don't trust in the mere words and strategies of Hezekiah. It's useless against this massive army of ours. Don't let the king fool you that he has some plan up his sleeve. You know, and Hezekiah did have a plan for attack. Super interesting. Uh, and if you go to Jerusalem to this day, you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Second Chronicles 32 tells us that, that in preparation, he knew the Assyrians were coming, and there's all these natural springs around Jerusalem and, and outside of the walls. And he went in and just buried the natural springs so that the army, the, the Assyrian army, couldn't use them to, to get water for the, the army. But he dug a tunnel and redirected the water from these natural springs underneath Jerusalem, this massive mile-long tunnel, so that the water would be within the walls. And you can go to this day, and it still has water in it. This was an amazing feat, but it wasn't going to save them. So the second argument, verse 6, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which uh, will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Saying, don't trust Egypt. The Syrians thought maybe they were hoping that Egypt would give them some cavalry to fight against the Assyrians. See, Israel, or Judah, and Jerusalem had no cavalry. They had no horses to fight. But here's the problem. Jerusalem was surrounded, so where are those horses going to come from? And Egypt was weak and not trustworthy. 
So the third argument, found in verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not, who's, is it not he whose high places and altar Hezekiah had removed, saying to Judah and, and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Hezekiah was a righteous king, if you... The, coming up to this uh, this passage, and and what he did as a righteous king was t- tear down all the high places, all the false worship that Judah had found themselves doing. But this made no sense to the Assyrians. In their bad theology, the more altars, the more high places, the more gods being worshipped, the more likely you would be able to succeed in warfare. Therefore, the Rabshakeh was saying, don't you realize you have crippled yourself? You've made God or the gods mad at you by tearing down the high places. Fourth argument, verse 8. Come now, make a wedger with my servant, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. This is, this is sarcasm. He's being sarcastic. He's saying, hey, I'll spot you 2,000 horses. I feel bad for you. It's like someone playing basketball against someone one-on-one. says, oh, we'll play to ten, I'll give you eight. That's how strong my army is. Verse 9. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Even if you had chariots and horsemen. My servants are more skilled than your highest captain. You have no hope. Fifth argument, verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. This is interesting. The Rabshakeh somehow knew that God was using the Assyrian army to punish Israel. How does he know this? Well, I can't get into all the details, but I think... Not 100% positive, but I think, and there's people that, are, that I'm agreeing with, that think that the Rabshakeh was, was, again, the chief military officer was probably a Jewish traitor. He grew up hearing all the prophecies that Assyria was going to be used to punish Israel. That Assyria was a tool used by God, what we learned last week. In verse 12 and, or 11 and 12 is a big reason why I think this. Look at verse 11. Then El- Elikim and Shebna and Joah, uh, this is Hezekiah's officials, said to the, the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servant in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Aramaic was, was the common language for nations to talk with each other. But the Rabshakeh was speaking Hebrew. Everyone within hearing distance of this guy could hear what he was saying. And the leaders of Judah were saying, don't speak speak in Aramaic so they can't hear you. Somehow he knew Hebrew. Verse 12. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall? who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. 
He's telling the people to, to rebel against King Hezekiah. And he's speaking in a way that everyone could hear him. He's hoping that they'll lose their trust in their king, saying, if you trust Hezekiah and you don't surrender, you are all doomed to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. This was a a common way of attacking a walled city. If the city was walled, instead of attacking it, they would just stay outside the city and wait until the people inside starved to death. He's saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to wait until you starve to death. Verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a, in a loud voice in the language of Judah in Hebrew. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. The sixth argument, verse 14. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of of the king of Assyria. Do not trust the king. He's lying to you. Don't listen to him when he says God is going to save you. Instead, trust in me. Look at verse 16. This is the seventh argument. Do not listen to King Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. He's saying if you surrender, I'm going to treat you well. And you know, this argument probably held a lot of weight. Think about it. If the Rabshakeh is an Israelite, He's saying, look at me. Syrians have treated me well. Eighth and last argument, verse 18. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any army of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hands? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hands, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Don't trust that God will deliver you. I am more powerful than any god. This is what the Assyrian king is saying. Now, this is a strong and scary argument. But look at the people's response. Verse 21. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Look, the people trusted Hezekiah. He was a righteous king. And he must have been an amazing leader. He said, follow me as I follow the Lord. Trust me as I trust the Lord. But I want to ask this question as we're talking about trust and trusting God. What does it mean to put your trust in God? 
I really think it means at least three things. That God is three things. One, God is completely sovereign and all-powerful. Why would you trust Him if He can't do anything? Two, God is completely good. If He's completely powerful and sovereign, but not good, then we don't trust Him. And three, He must be completely wise. Because maybe he's all-powerful, maybe he's all-good, but he's not doing the right things. And if God is not fully one of these three things, then God is not fully trustworthy. Listen to the Rabshakeh's argument, and listen to what he's trying to say. He's saying, don't trust God, trust the king of Assyria. Verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Don't trust God. Verse 15. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Don't trust the Lord. Verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Who's sovereign? Who's all-powerful? God or the king of Assyria? This is what he's saying. Who do you fear more? God's not in control. He's not sovereign. Don't trust in him. I am more powerful than him. This is the argument. Look at the second part of verse 16. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of them his own fig tree. And each one of you will, will drink water from his own cistern. Not only is the king powerful and sovereign, but he's saying, you know, I'm I'm good. Just come to me. I'll take care of you. Verse 16, the first part. Don't listen to Hezekiah, who is saying, trust God. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Don't trust God. Trust the king of Assyria. He is sovereign. He is good. He is wise. Not God. This is the message of this military leader. Skip down to chapter 37 now, verse 1. And as soon as as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. I mean, this seems hopeless. His arguments are weighty. Hezekiah, Hezekiah was rightfully distressed in this time. But there's good news, and I hope we don't freak out too much as we go through this passage. Let me remind you Hosea's prophecy. We know the end. I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them. By the Lord their God, I will not save them them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. It's going to be a miraculous salvation. I am going to save Judah. Now let me just say something. I joke around about this a little bit. But when life gets hard, and life was hard here, Think about this. You are trapped in a city with one of the most vicious armies ever. Think of ISIS, 185,000 and more strong, ready to come in and take you out. This truly happened. There was distress and stress going on. But God promises that he will save them. Verse 2. And he, being Hezekiah, sent Elohim 
who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and some of the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Hezekiah, at this point, is admitting, We do not deserve to be saved. We are a people that have sinned. Your judgment deserves to fall on us. But he humbly asked in verse 4, May it be, this is, this is humbly asking, May it be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rebshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Isaiah, pray for us. Pray for us. Verse 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. You know what God says here? Trust me. Trust me, I'm going to save you, Hezekiah. I'm going to save Judah. Let me remind you one more time, this was prophesied before Hezekiah was ever a king. That he was going to save Judah and save him in a miraculous way. I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them. This is the second prophecy that Judah will be saved. Isaiah is now prophesying, you'll be saved. Don't panic. Skip to verse 10. This is going to be Sennacherib's, the king of Assyria's last attempt. He's going to, to, to get Judah just to surrender. He's tried to get the people to not trust Hezekiah, and they were silent. He's going to send a personal letter to the king, Hezekiah himself. Try to convince Hezekiah that you shouldn't trust God. Look at verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my father have destroyed? And he goes through list of nation after nation after nation. The king of Assyria is saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you. What's that sound like? Genesis 3. The same thing the devil said. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said, Yes, that's what he said. The devil's response, You will not surely die. God has deceived you. He has lied to you. Don't trust God. He is a liar. He's not all good. 
He is not trustworthy. You know what? This is true spiritual warfare. You want to know what spiritual warfare is? It's any philosophy, idea, teaching, event, experience, or feeling that says don't trust God. And Hezekiah approaches this warfare appropriately. He prays. Skip to verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messenger and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Now this prayer is amazing. It's theologically rich. Hezekiah knew his scriptures. It's so theological and biblical that many liberal scholars say it couldn't have been his prayer. Too biblical. It must have been rewritten by the author who copied the thoughts found in Deuteronomy. They're completely ignoring the fact that the king was called to study intensely Deuteronomy. That was a command in Deuteronomy. And Hezekiah was a faithful king. I mean, his prayer is straight out of the book of Deuteronomy, and he's praying scripture. It's theologically rich, and it's radically God-centered, not man. Listen to verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Lord of hosts is a title in Isaiah that's used more than any other title. We see it used 46 times in, in chapters 1 through 39. The title emphasizes God's sovereignty over all heavenly powers. His, his complete sovereignty over everything. Lord over everything. God of Israel. Lord of hosts, God of Israel. Even though he's the Lord of hosts, he is especially our God. We are his chosen people, Israel. The title stresses God's love for his chosen people, Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. In the middle of Israel is Jerusalem. In the heart of Jerusalem is the temple. In the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. In the middle of the Holy Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant are two statues of angels called cherubim. God was especially present in the the Holy of Holies above the cherubim. Lord of hosts, Lord of everything, heaven and earth, God of Israel, specifically Israel, God's chosen people, enthroned above the cherubim, specially present in the Holy of Holies, the heart of the temple, the heart of Jerusalem. You are the God, you alone. In this time period, all pagan nations, everyone believed that there was many gods. There were polytheistic, many theos, many gods. But Hezekiah knew there was only one God. You are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you are God over all the earth, specifically Israel, but all the earth. Not only that, you have made heaven and earth. You are all-powerful, maker of heaven and earth by speaking. Verse 17, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. 
Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words. Hezekiah here is saying, you are the living God. All other gods are lifeless. They're wood. They're, 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 they're metal. They're, they're not gods. They're not alive. They're dead. They can't hear. They can't see. But you are the living God that hears and sees. Oh, Lord, and see and hear all the words of, of who? I, I read this and I was thinking of, of Israel, of Judah, of Hezekiah. Listen to our prayers. But no. Hear all the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock the living God. Listen to how this pagan God is mocking you. This pagan, this pagan king is mocking you. Don't let him get away with it. And here is the amazing, this is biblical, just amazing prayer. And, and this is something that, that we can take from here. It's, it's an honest prayer. Right, right. Hezekiah is going to be honest. We can be honest with God. If we have a relationship with God, we can be honest with him of, of where, what we feel, what is going on, the stresses that are going on in our life. Look at the honesty here. Verse 18. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste of all the nations, all the lands, and have cast their gods into the, the fire. He understands reality. He doesn't stand a chance against his ar- army. His army is completely surrounding him. But look what Hezekiah does. He, he, Hezekiah puts what he sees from man's perspective and he puts it in a biblical perspective. We need to do this. We can be honest with God from our perspective, but we need to try to see it from God's perspective. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. They were no gods. You are the living God. Hezekiah's prayer is radically God-centered. Listen to this last line, verse 20. So then, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Save us so you will be glorified. Glorify yourself through our salvation. Hezekiah's prayer was radically God-centered. And that's because Hezekiah understood he was praying to a radically God-centered God. If you don't believe this is true, you don't know your scriptures. Why did God create us? For his glory. Isaiah 43, 6-7. Why did God choose us? For his glory. Ephesians 1, 4-6. Why did God call Israel? For his glory. Jeremiah 13, 11. Why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? For his glory. Psalms 106, 7 through 8. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? For his glory. Romans 9, 17. Why did God part the Red Sea? For his glory. Exodus 14, 4 and 18. Why did God spare Israel in the wilderness? For his glory. Ezekiel 20, 14. Why did God give Israel victory in the promised land? For his glory. 2 Samuel 7, 23. Why did God save Jerusalem from attack? For his glory. 2 Kings 19.34 Why did God restore Israel from exile? For his glory. Ezekiel 36.22-23 And this is just the Old Testament. The New Testament, Jesus did everything for the glory of God. 
John 7, 18, Matthew 5, 16, John 5, 44, John 14, 13, and so on. He forgave our sins for his glory. Isaiah 43, 25. He gave us the Holy Spirit for his glory. John 16, 14. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me ask the question, does prayer fit under whatever you do? Yes, we are called to pray to the glory of God. This is why James 4.2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. How often are our prayers focused on our selfish desires? I know for me that's true. Instead, we should be seeking, even in our prayer life, the honor and glory of God. And this was the common way people prayed in the scriptures. Peter and John, threatened by the authorities, don't turn there, but, but, but Acts 4, uh, verse 24, they're threatened by the authorities, so what do they do? They pray. Verse 24 says this, and, and when they heard it, this, this threat coming, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. They recognize that, God, you're in control. Sovereign Lord. That's how they start their prayer. Even though it seems like life is out of control, Sovereign Lord. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it? Not only are you sovereign, you're all powerful. You spoke all this into existence. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and this is crazy, they literally pray scripture. They quote it. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers, were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Listen to this line. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow. Peter didn't have a problem with God's sovereignty and prayer. They go hand in hand. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. We're we're getting threatened. They're they're coming after us. Lord, see that. Why? Why save us? Why save us? And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Save us so that you may be glorified in the preaching of the word. This is a radically God-centered prayer. This shouldn't surprise us. I mean, that's how Jesus taught Peter to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name be glorified. Your name be holy. Glorify your name, God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth that is in heaven. Hezekiah's prayer was radically God-centered. And he prays knowing that God is sovereign, God is good, and God is wise. 
Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Wait a second. Because you have prayed... Isaiah is going to go in, you're going to see the, the, the writing in the Bible change, because it's a poetic prophecy he goes into. And in this poetic prophecy, he pretty much says, I'm going to save Judah. Because you have prayed. I will save you. But we already knew that. Hosea's prophecy. Isaiah's earlier prophecy. Why did God say, because he prayed, I will save Judah? If he already had it planned to do so. Let me ask you a question. Think about this. Was God going to save Judah because God sovereignly decreed, declared it years before Hezekiah was even king, or because Hezekiah prayed for salvation? Quote Pastor Andy, yes. Both. God is sovereignly in control, and man's prayers matter. God pre-planned to save Judah by miraculous means. And he also pre-planned that he would do it because Hezekiah prayed. And at the same time, it was, it was Hezekiah's choice to pray. Side note, we started today by saying God's revelation is God revealing truth to us that we'd otherwise not know. He pulls back the curtains so we can see behind the scenes sometimes in, in scriptures. He doesn't show us everything, but he shows us enough. Many times the truths he shows us are so comprehensive, so beyond us, that we, we can't understand them. And we're called to hold these truths in tension. God reveals that he's one and three. He's one in essence, three in persons. There's a tension there. We're called just to hold that in perfect tension and believe it. God reveals that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human, and that equals 100% somehow. We're called to hold that in tension. God reveals that the Bible was written by human authors. Yet, every word they wrote was exactly what God wanted them to write. Therefore, he's the author. We have to hold that intention. In most Christians, within the realm of Christianity, within the realm of, of, I have to define this now, evangelical, solid, conservative Christianity, are totally okay holding those truths in tension. Every time I talk to someone that's within that realm and say, Trinity, can't understand it. Yes, can't understand it. We're okay with that. But when it comes to God being 100% sovereign, at the same time our choices, action, and prayers matter, we always want to, for some reason, unravel that tension. Either by saying man is not responsible, or that God is not completely sovereign. Neither are found in God's word. It's like Job's three friends. Man gets it wrong. We have to hold this truth in tension. 
Our prayers should be repentive, humble, biblical, honest, radically God-centered, to the glory of God, with confident trust that God is sovereign, God is good, and God is wise. Prayer, more than anything, should just show our trust in the Lord. And Hezekiah trusted the Lord. Look at verse 22. Just quickly go through this poetic prophecy against, against Assyria because of Hezekiah's prayer. This is a word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. This is concerning the, the king of Assyria. This is a prophecy against him. Whom have you mocked? Verse 23. And reviled. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. You're not fighting Israel. You're fighting me. Verse 24. But your servant, your servants, you have mocked the Lord. By your servants, you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Libyan, to cut down its tallest trees. He's saying, look how great I am. But this is what God says, verse 26, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I, God, am the reason you are so great, Assyria. Have you not heard? I planned it from days of old. What now I bring to pass that you should make four to five cities crushed into heaps of ruins. God is saying, I am the one that's completely in control. I am sovereign. Verse 28. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in. God hasn't limited his sovereignty. God hasn't limited his knowledge. Again, look at verse 28. I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. And I know you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me. And your, your complacency has come to my ears. What's that sound like? Hezekiah's prayer. He's answering Hezekiah's prayer. I'm listening to what he said. I'm listening to what Sennacherib said. I'm listening to this blasphemy. And I'm going to do something about it. I will put my hooks in your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I will turn you back the way by which you came. Skip to verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria... He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow, arrow, arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast um, up a um, siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant. David, I will answer Hezekiah's prayer. I will save Israel for my glory and because I have made a covenant with David. Now this is a long ordeal. Two long chapters of this threat of Assyria coming. And it purposely is two verses on the destruction of Assyria. Two verses on the destruction of the Assyrian army. Verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. 
And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. We learn in the next couple verses that he dies there through God's sovereign plan. Hosea's prophecy came true. I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. I will send one angel, one messenger, and wipe out 185,000 of them. What an amazing, powerful, sovereign, good, wise God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, it is humbling to speak your words this morning. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We thank you for the scriptures, Lord, showing us behind the scenes of what's truly going on, Lord, when life seems chaotic, when life seems it's out of our hands, and it truly is, it's in your hands. God, help us to trust in you, not that, that we need an answer for everything that happens to us, that we just trusting in a, in a good, powerful, wise God. Help our prayers reflect that trust. Help our prayers just be scripture, Lord, that is pouring out of us because we, we study scripture so much that that's just what comes out of us. God, I thank you. I thank you for revealing these truths to us. And I pray that we are all humbled this morning before you. Amen.